Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Getting a Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, April 18th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, April 15th, Clifton M. Heiser's birthday, and happy birthday, Clifton. And we are about to once again address Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seed Line Doctrine? And this is part 10 of our series, and it's subtitled, The Nature of Cain. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Once again, I have Truthvids here with me to help with our presentation, and I thank him for that. Hello, Truthvids. Hey, Bill. It's great to be back. Thank you. Uh, yeah, happy birthday, Clifton. Um, yeah, today we can get a bit more into how important is the descendants of Cain and the Genesis 10 nations and why they had to be separated. And uh, even today, you know, we're so reliant on that Genesis 10 table as it explains everything. And it's, it's amazing how you can piece it all together and work out where all our nations come from, from that, that single like document that was written thousands of years ago. And we're very grateful that Yahweh left us that. Well, well, right. That Genesis 10 table of nations is extremely important to to um, to us today because it establishes that the people of the Bible were absolutely white. It it establishes what um, archaeologists and anthropologists had fully believed throughout the 18th, 19th, and and even many of them in the early 20th centuries, which was that the cradle of Western civilization was in Mesopotamia and the Near East, as well as the Middle East, and that the European nations were ultimately birthed from that region. And when you trace um, our culture, our early myths, so many of the earliest Greek myths were centered on the East. For instance, um, Dionysus, Dionysius came from the Levant. That the, um, the kings of the Greeks had come from the East. The tale of Perseus and his saving Andromeda from the sea monster when she was chained by the sea, that that was from Joppa in Palestine. The Greek gods and goddesses all have um, cognate predecessors in the East. But when we look at like Anath in, in, Anath in Palestine and Athena and, and realize that words were read sometimes forwards or backwards, and, and that writing went forwards and backwards. We could see how Anath was transformed into Athena in Athens. And, and that there are so many parallels that I could do separate um, present. I have done separate presentations on that topic alone. But for centuries, this is what we understood as our roots. And this has only changed since the Jews gained practically full control of academic thought, which, 
began in, in the 19th century and, and has developed into the, this apostate, atheistic, evolutionary point of view that most people have today, that we evolved separately, that we, our ancestors sat in, in the, um, in the wintry regions of Northern Europe for 40,000 years before they ever built the first castle. And, and, and they froze their asses off for 40,000 years. There aren't even enough trees to keep an, any significant population warm. And, and, and there's no infrastructure. How could clowns like David Duke believe that our ancestors sat in the ice for 40,000 years before they actually ever built anything. It, it's incredible that this evolutionary yeah, point of view. It, I remember it, being taught that at school that, um, you know, us, the British or English, whatever you want to say, we, we were living in the mud, in mud huts until the Romans came over. And I, and I couldn't believe it. It didn't make sense. But the teacher honestly seemed to believe that. And, and it's just crazy the things we are taught now. Right, and and it all comes from that deception that Satan has spread around the whole world through, quote unquote, academia. What which isn't academia at all; it's Jewish theory that that has replaced our classical knowledge. It's totally supplanted our classical knowledge. We were a lot better off with our classical knowledge, and and we had a much firmer foundation. And, and Charles, clowns like Charles Weissman contribute to that, with these disputations over scripture. That it's no doubt that the yeah, Jews are Satan. Yeah, and just lastly, I'm sorry. sorry. It, it's no doubt that the Jews are Satan that have deceived the whole world. Go on. Yeah, and um, you know, just lastly, as we were saying, where the scribes were sneaking in and starting to you know delete or wipe the origin of Cain. They've only now taken it further, the Jews, their descendants, in doing it with all the races, so that we're all now mixed in one bag. Well, well right. I, I mean, that this corruption of Genesis 4.1 and, and corruption of certain other parts of Scripture or, or the removal of books, the, the destruction of books, that this has been the Jewish agenda for all of history, I, I mean, they were infiltrating the old kingdom of Judah from the time of, of, of the first kings, David and Solomon, that they were infiltrating, that they were the prophets of the 7th century BC, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, had both called out the elders of Judah for their allowing the, the Canaanites to infiltrate the society of that time and corrupt it. They've always been doing this. This has always been a problem. White empathy and, and um, altruism didn't have Solomon... always been a problem for us. I'm sorry. Didn't Solomon try to put them into hard labor to try and get rid of them? Well, well right. The Canaanites were enslaved, but the, the, the best solution that, he could come up with. That the Canaanites were all supposed, supposed to be exterminated. They weren't supposed to be enslaved. Whenever we enslave an alien people, it always works to our detriment because, first, not all white men can have the aptitude to sit 
at a desk and be accountants or lawyers or authors or doctors. Many of us just need to work at common labor for a living. When we use slavery of other races for our labor, we put a lot of our own men out of work. The slaves always end up rising up and becoming um, detrimental elements to our society. It happened in ancient Palestine. It happened in Rome when the slaves were all made free men in the time of Caracalla. The free men were all given citizenship and Rome began to crumble because you had um, people with disparate interests and, and we see that same thing in America today, where these niggers, our former slaves, are now a, a they're now free and, and equal citizens, and they're a huge burden on our society and a detriment to the white people that had built this nation. So whenever whenever we use foreign labor in in, in alien labor at in slavery, it always burns us in the end, every single time. So that that's yeah, a exactly. whole digression too. I'm sorry. Um, but I had to answer that. It it burnt the ancient Israelites, the, the Canaanites that they used as slaves were always there, were always in the background, eventually became free men and, and became a detriment to the ancient Israelite society. And we see that pattern in history. We could see it today, especially in America. <clears throat> there were um, very few black slaves brought back to England or, or any other, except for Portugal. Portugal took them all back, and look at Portugal today. In our last discussion of Chapter 4 of yeah. Weissman's book, we showed that on four occasions and a fifth, Weissman had lied about the substance of the genealogies which are supplied in the Bible, or I should say provided in the Bible. We also spoke at length on Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, and showed that it is a corrupt witness, that interpretations of it, and even the actual substance of it, were debated in ancient times. And that if it is a corrupt, if it is corrupt, and it is not corroborated by any other witness, then it is useless for the purpose of formulation of doctrine because it is unreliable. Since it is the only witness that Cain was a natural son of Adam, the supposition must be open to debate because it is an unreliable witness. To the contrary, there are many witnesses in Scripture and in early Christian apocryphal writings which insist that Cain was not the natural son of Adam. The words of our Redeemer and his apostles also serve to prove that Cain was not Adam's natural son. I know you might want to have a comment on, on that, on our discussion from last week. 
Yeah, we mentioned just briefly that Cain meant acquired and that Abel meant breath. But it seems there was also a deeper meaning in that uh, Adam got the Adamic spirit breathed into him by Yahweh. And that would seem what we could argue that that's the meaning of Abel, that he continued that breath of life, you know, through his descendants, whilst Cain was acquired through um, the serpent. Right. Well, well, right. And, and that's a very good analogy. And a lot of people, um, even in mainstream commentary, where Eve supposedly, because I don't trust Genesis chapter four, verse one, but where Eve supposedly said, I have gotten a man, that is also that word Cana, which is Strong's number 7069, and it's directly related to the name Cain. It, it's the word that the, the name Cain is derived from. So if one of the... Um, one of the Septuagint readings, one, one, I'm sorry, one of the alternate readings in Origins Hexapla was, I have gotten a man from a god or from a lord. And, and that would be exactly in line with how the apostles describe that this... Um, this seduction of Eve and, and this birth of Cain. I, I mean, they don't mention it explicitly, but Paul said in reference to Eve and her seduction and loss of virginity, he, he said that the devil appears, that Satan appears as an angel of light. And this almost, in, that this almost insinuates that Eve had believed that she was getting a man from a god, that she was impregnated by this god or, or this lord, not by Yahweh, but by an, an agent that was pretending to be a god. And, and that might be considered mere conjecture, but the story that the New Testament posits or, or presents concerning Cain is absolutely contrary to what we read in Genesis chapter four, verse one. And if you had broken into another man's house and you, you had seduced his wife and had a child, well, yeah, that would be an, an acquiring, an acquiring of something that was not yours. So... That seems to be what is exclaimed in the, the diverse meanings of the names of, of Cain and Abel, which does mean breath, and, and which does allude to the transmission of the spirit in, as it's described in Genesis chapter 2. Now, now, I will also add that if only the genealogy of the chosen line was given. And, and we discussed this last week because Weissman tried to say that Cain was not mentioned in Adam's genealogies because only the genealogy of the chosen line was given. That was Weissman's insistence. 
and 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 he spoke those words in relation to Abraham, but he was using that to describe why Cain is not mentioned in Adam's genealogy. If only the genealogy of the chosen line was given, as Weissman also insisted, then why are any other genealogies supplied at all? We see the descendants of Cain are recorded for several generations in Genesis chapter 4. So Weissman is found to have lied about that, as well as he himself had attested that Cain was not chosen in the sense of being Adam's heir and successor. So Weissman was basically like contradicting himself in his own argument. Later in scripture, there are many references to a tribe of Kenites. So Genesis chapter 4 provides us with enough information to know about them and to be able to see that they existed in sufficient numbers to be so identified as a tribe later in scripture. For example, in Genesis chapter 15, I believe that's where, they, where the Kenites are first mentioned as a tribe. Genesis chapter 15 is an account of all the descendants. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 10 is an account of all the descendants of Noah and the nations which they formed, which can indeed be identified historically as the white nations of early history. And in Genesis chapter 10, the descendants of Canaan are also listed, even though Canaan was cursed. And in later chapters of Genesis, the descendants of Ishmael and the sons of Abraham by Keturah are listed. The Canaanites were cursed and the others were sent off by Abraham because they were not chosen. But in spite of that, they appear later in scripture and they were included in the genealogies. And I'm basically summarizing what we had discussed last week, how Weissman had lied about this. Ultimately, it becomes apparent that these genealogies were given so that the children of Israel could determine who their own racial kindred are. That's why we have a table of Genesis chapter 10 nations, because there are other people in the world that did not descend from Noah. So, we have this so that the children of Israel could determine who their own racial kindred are and who the corrupt races are so that they could act accordingly when they encountered them. And the importance of being able to identify them is made evident by the law, which commanded the children of Israel to treat certain tribes in certain ways. This identification in these genealogical tables was necessary for future generations who also had to understand the origin of their neighbors and the significance of reasons for which they were commanded to either accept or reject them. So where the accursed descendants of Canaan are identified in the area where Abraham was to dwell which is described in Genesis chapter 15. We see tribes of the Kenites and Rephaim are also mentioned as being among them.
And there in Genesis chapter 15, we also see references to the other tribe, to other tribes which have no genealogy from Noah. And from that they're not listed in Genesis chapter 10. And they are the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites. I'm sorry, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, and the Perizzites. So we have these groups, which are not mentioned before in Scripture, appear in Genesis chapter 15. There are other scriptures which show us that these alien groups are distinct. For example, in Genesis chapter 13, we read from verse 7, and there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. So we see that the Perizzites are a group distinct from the Canaanites. When you go back and look at the descendants of Canaan and the tribes that came from Canaan in Genesis chapter 10, the Perizzites are not mentioned. So where did they come from? So we see that the Perizzites were indeed a group which was distinct, and they have no origination with Adam or with Noah, as the descendants of Adam through Noah are listed in Genesis chapter 10. So in Genesis chapter 15, we see that the land of Canaan was inhabited by Canaanites and by four other tribes, which Genesis chapter 10 tells us are also families of the Canaanites. They are the Hittites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I guess they were families that were that grew large enough among the Canaanites that they had their own distinct names, just like there were 12 tribes in Israel, right? But then among those five tribes of Canaanites, there were the alien tribes of the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, and Perizzites, along with the Kenites and the Rephaim, which are the descendants of Cain and the giants, all who obviously survived the flood because the flood was not a global event, even if it caused a great cataclysm across a significant portion of the world. The flood couldn't have covered the entire world, if you want to call it global, depending on your view of cosmology, which is a separate topic entirely. So, Bill, um, eventually the Canaanites got so intermixed with all of these tribes, so just for simplicity, they just were all referred to as Canaanites. Well, well, eventually, yes, they were all referred to as Canaanites. That eventually, and and we see this in Scripture. Yet, you know, in in at the time of Abraham. There are 10 tribes listed in the land of Canaan. But in the days of Joshua, which is almost 500 years later, there are only seven tribes listed in the land of Canaan that are associated with the Canaanites. And some of them aren't listed, but they are still there. 
they are still mentioned in other places in Scripture. So they either, portions of them either blended in with the population of Canaan to the point where they were no longer recognizable, yet portions of the same tribes had remained outside of the land, in the land of the Amorites or in the lands of Moab or the other lands to the east. So Kenites are mentioned later in Scripture, but they're not mentioned amongst the tribes of Canaan, but they are mentioned in other places. So we, we see that there was definitely um, mixing which was going on. If you look in the, in, into the Old Testament in the patterns of social activity among the Canaanites, they were always trying to intermarry with their neighboring tribes so that they could have peace and, and commerce with those tribes. And, and that's very evident right in the book of Genesis, such as when the, um, the men of Shechem wanted to intermarry and, and exchange the, their women, give their women as wives to the children of Jacob. That, that's one outstanding example of that tendency among the Canaanites. And there are others as well. I'm going through this and, and through these genealogies to show that Charles Weissman actually lied when he said that the Bible only provided genealogies for the chosen line. There are many other genealogies in Scripture of non-chosen people because the children of Israel had to be aware of them and had to warn future generations about them as they created these, these writings and, and these chronicles. These aliens, which are listed in Genesis chapter 15 as being in the land of Canaan, along with the tribes of the Canaanites, are not the only groups of aliens in the world. In Genesis chapter 14, there is a description of other tribes who dwelt across the River Jordan. And we see references to Rephames, as well as to the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shava Kiriathaim. Now, Shava Kiriathaim was a later um, city of Manasseh opposite the Jordan River, after the Israelites had conquered it and driven out the, the giants and, and the, the Canaanites. The Emim, or Emims, were also giants, and they are described as both Anakim and Rephaim in Deuteronomy chapter 2, where it speaks of the same region east of the Jordan, and it says the Emims dwelt therein in times past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims, which were also accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites called them Emims. In Numbers chapter 13, we learn that certain Rephaim were called Anakim because they were sons of a certain one of the Nephilim who was named Anak. And we read, and there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. 
So we were in their sight. The word for giants in that passage is Nephilim, the fallen ones, the same word which is found in Genesis chapter 6 and translated as giants, where it says there were giants in the earth in those days and after. Now, I don't think there were any giants on the Ark of Noah. I'm just saying. <laughs> Even though some of the early Targums made that claim that Og of Bashan had hidden, and, and I forget which Targum this is. It might have been the Targum of Ankylos. Some of the early Targums were kind of childish in their interpretations. And Og of Bashan was said to have hidden on the roof of Noah's Ark to survive the flood. But that's a childish view of scripture, especially since it doesn't account for the Kenites and all the other Rephaim and Nephilim who survived the flood. The truth of the matter is that they weren't on the Ark of Noah, but they survived the flood because the flood wasn't a global cataclysm. The, the, the flood didn't cover the whole world. I don't care if you think if it's a globe or if it's flat or whatever it is, it didn't cover the whole world or the entire earth. It only covered the entirety of a particular land. And that word earth is land. And, and it's translated land over a thousand times in the King James Bible. So we have all these people that have no um, genealogy in Genesis chapter 10 who have no origination with the sons of Adam or the sons of Noah, and they are in the world, and they are connected to, um, they are often but not always connected to the Nephilim or the Kenites. And then we have these other groups, Kenizzites, Perizzites, Cadmonites, and we don't know where the hell they came from. We're not told ever, anywhere, where they came from. They just, they're just there. And, but, and Bill, also, um, in, in all the Greek myths, right, they would travel into Europe, settle, set up a colony, and then they would discover these these giants or creatures. Yeah. Centuries the, later, people would just think, oh, it must be a myth. And the Greeks wrote about troglodytes and, and people that lived in holes in the ground and that, that were like alien to them that they didn't understand or comprehend, right? They were just um, like munchkins or dwarfs or, or forest creatures or satyrs or whatever that they were always um, outside of the society and, and marginalized. And, and the Greeks never thought of dressing them in Greek clothing and, and bringing them to Athens and making them citizens. I, I've never read anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Calling them people and making them citizens. No, the Greeks would have never went to Africa and got some mandingo and brought him back to Athens and installed him in a house and gave him welfare and called him a citizen and let him marry all their daughters. That would have never happened in ancient Athens. There would have been an uprising immediately. There would have been an inquisition immediately. 
we're just polluted <laughs> with these Jewish ideas of egalitarianism. These um that this other group mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, the Zuzims are even more interesting because the name Zuzim apparently means roving creatures. So these scriptures describe certain people only as roving creatures and does not indicate their origin. This is one reason why we assert that the non-Adamic races must be branches on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because Yahweh took no credit for having created them in his account of the Genesis creation. But while the Zuzims are not mentioned again, it is possible that they are the same as another group which was called by a slightly different name in Deuteronomy chapter 2, which also appears only once in Scripture, and that is Zamzumims, where we read of the land of the Ammonites that also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelt therein in old time, and the Ammonites call them Zamzumims, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims. Now, while the word Zuzim is defined as roving creatures, Zamzumim is defined as plotters, and both descriptions seem to fit the roving bands of robbers, which were relegated to the ancient wilderness, the Mexican banditos, or taco goblins, of the ancient world. Perhaps another <laughs> fitting description of them would be satyrs that these um, kind of vagrant scavenger people who always existed on the outskirts of society, who were not a part of the world, <clears throat> these other races. Weissman's view of the That's story, how they survive, by being bandits, right? Right. They, they, right, because they don't... Uh, I mean... That they hardly actually grow or create anything or work at husbandry or agriculture in, in a way that can sustain a thriving society. I, I mean, that they can, even a lot of African tribes can engage in subsistence agriculture, but they can't engage in the sort of agriculture that the white races engage in, which, which, where a, a small number of farmers can feed an entire society. That's not how they, 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 they don't have that capability to do that. They simply don't. When white farmers um, operated in, in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe was a huge food exporter. And, and then when Mogadishu, I think his name is, had confiscated all the white farms, now Zimbabwe is starving and they have to rely on food imports and, and gifts of food because they can't even pay for it. So, I, I mean, blacks are never gonna, going to be successful at, at farming and agriculture. They, they, you have these black tribes in Africa that do subsistence agriculture that barely scrape by and grow beans and, and, and 
seeds and and plants just to feed themselves and and then they had to supplement that diet with with um the meat from rotting dead animals or they eat bug patties they make they make like hamburger patties out of captured mosquitoes and and they fry them on rocks in a fire i mean that there's plenty of documentation on, on, on that that can be found right on youtube or other places on the internet it, it's not a secret that's how they live they use their own urine for for bug repellent that's how they live they, they, yeah and, and- and they've been like that for thousands of years. And yes. then as soon as whites come, within a few decades, it's a paradise. It's like... Absolutely. So, so we've always had these other races um, relegated to the outskirts of society. And, and we see this right here in the Hebrew Scriptures, that we have these peoples that, that are cursed, and we have these other races dwelling among the accursed people. That these Kenizzites and Cadmonites and Perizzites are dwelling among the accursed Kenites and Canaanites. And that was the land that Abraham was sent into, which is probably, I mean, it was the home of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the absolute worst place. It's like a white boy growing up in New York City. And it's like a white man in, in his later stages of life being plucked out of rural Tennessee or rural Kentucky and told to go live in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. And and it's going to be so foreign, so alien to you because it's filled with disgust and perversion and filthy bastards, filthy Jewish Canaanite, Canaanite bastards. And, and that that's what, happened to Abraham. He was pulled out of northern Mesopotamia and told to go live in the land of Canaan. And these people were so foreign to him. And and we should be able to see why. Weissman's view of the scriptures cannot explain the origin or the consequences of any of these circumstances. And neither can any mainstream denominational Christian view. The mainstream churches cannot even countenance questions about Zuzim, Anakim, Rephaim, or Kenite in relation to the Nephilim or in relation to the history and ultimate plan of God as it is outlined in scriptures. They can't even talk about this stuff. The only view that can explain these things in harmony with all scripture as well as with history is our two-seed line view. That's the only legitimate view when you really get down to the nitty-gritty details of Scripture. Last week, we also discussed the meaning of the term Kenite and how it also came to be identified with the vocation of Smith. But there was one point I forgot to mention in that discussion, which is quite important. So I'm going to explain it here. That is the fact that there is a testimony of this connection in Genesis chapter 4. There we read of the wives of Lamech, who was a descendant of Cain in the fifth generation down the line. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zelah. 
and Adabair Jabal. He was the father of such as dwell in tents and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and the organ. And when they say the father of everybody that does this, it, it means that the family, that that son took on a particular trade. He passed it down to his sons. And he was the, the, the um, founder of that trade among the Kenites, but not in any relation to any other race. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handled the harp and the organ. And Zila, she also bare Tubalcane, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubalcane was Naamah. So apparently, among Cain's descendants, there were notable musicians as well as notable smiths or metal workers. And in order to create harps and organs, whatever ancient instrument that represents, one must also be adept at being a smith. So the family must have had smiths in the line even before the birth of Tubalcain. But it is apparent that Tubalcain had mastered the occupation to the point where he became an instructor of smiths. Therefore, it is evident that the word Kenite, in reference to the occupation of Smith, may certainly have come from the circumstance that the Kenites were not only notable Smiths, but even teachers of those who would take up the vocation. And for that reason, I believe it is evident that the words became synonymous. I don't know if you have a, a comment Didn't, in relation um... to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I just wanted to say it's funny how now uh, Jews are all about pop music and entertainment. And on the other hand, jewels, trinkets, bracelets, necklaces, you know, gold, banking. It is funny after 7,000 years, it, nothing's changed, right? Well, well yeah, right. That, that's um, that they, they are all occupations that, that are easily given to produce idolatry. If we look at um, yeah, Paul of Tarsus in in Acts chapter nineteen, he's in Ephesus. He's preaching Christianity. There's a very famous pagan temple of Artemis in Ephesus, and the first people that got really upset with Paul were the smiths, Demetrius, the silversmith. They they created these little idols. That these little models of Artemis or models of the temple or whatever, they founded these little um, idols in their foundries and, and they sold them at the temple. And that's how they earned their living, feeding off of idolatry. And Christians despise idolatry. They despise that sort of um, idolatry. And Demetrius got all pissed off at Paul. He wanted to have him killed. He wanted to run him out of town on a rail because he was preaching against idolatry. Yeah. And, and also, um, wasn't Canaanite, the word Canaanite, it became synonymous with merchant, just like Kenite and Smith? Yes. 
and and right, the word Canaanite really didn't mean merchant, not originally. Um, it became synonymous with merchant in that same way, and and there are clear texts in the prophets which in which the word Canaanite in the context in which it appears clearly means merchant. So the King James translators even recognized that and translated it as merchant. So yes, the word Canaanite became synonymous with merchant at that early time. Now we're going to um, focus on Weissman's book and we shall continue dismantling Weissman's lies, where we left off in his book on page 29. And I'm going to read one short paragraph. Weissman says, let's turn to the supposed satanic nature of Cain. If the serpent was a satanic entity, and if Cain was the offspring of this serpent, then Cain too would be satanic. He would have also inherited the curse of the serpent, being cursed above all cattle. This leads us to ask, would God have accepted such a person as an heir to Adam? No sound reasoning could say that he would, yet that was exactly God's position towards Cain. Now, now we're going to cut this paragraph one sentence short, and we'll address that sentence and that aspect of it later as to what God really, as to whether God really would have accepted Cain. But first I want to address what we perceive by the use of the word satanic. As Weissman himself explained, Satan only means adversary. But it is clear in scripture that there are a class of men who are forever adversarial to God. These Rephaim, these Zuzims, that these Kenites, Cadmonites, Perizzites, Kenizzites, nowhere in Scripture are the children of Israel ever told to accept them, to intermarry with them. They're supposed to kill them all because those people can't possibly be converted. And, and it's not about religion, it's about race. Rebecca's life what was meaningless to her if Jacob married any of the daughters of Heth. It's not about belief or faith. It's about race. So, it is clear in Scripture that there are a class of men who are forever adversarial to God. It does not matter whether they recognize the one true God. As James told us, that the devils know there is one God, and they tremble. And as Christ told us, many would believe him and do works in his name. Yet he would say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. It's about race. It's not about belief. It is also apparent in the Gospels that even demons, which we perceive as disembodied devils, recognized both God and Christ, but they were still demons and they were still his enemies. So what is satanic is what is opposed to God. And the Genesis record is clear that there were entire tribes and races of people who fell into that category, but who were spread throughout the ancient world. 
So now to continue with Weissman's paragraph, he says, when Cain had offered an inappropriate sacrifice, God said to him, and the Lord said to Cain, why are you wroth and why or angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door. Citing Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Now, I don't know how that makes Cain the heir to Adam. But Weissman is insinuating that. It, it, it's not in the text. He's reading it into the text, as he always reads his own ideas into the text. And then he, he says, God could have rightly made this statement to Abel, Adam, or any Israelite. They would be accepted if they do what God desired. But was God willing to accept some cursed, half-breed, satanic mongrel? No. He was, however, prepared to accept Cain because he was Adamic, not Satanic. God also places Cain on equal footing with Abel by calling Abel Cain's brother in Genesis 4, verse 9. And the truth is that there is no word in Hebrew for half-brother. There's no word. And there are half-brothers all throughout the scriptures who are referred to as brothers. Just go look at the accounts of the sons of David. Absalom had killed his half-brother who was called his brother. Because in Hebrew, there's no term. If, you're from, if you have one parent in common, that's considered your brother. Or your sister, simply because you have one parent in common. Weissman is making several suppositions here with which we do not agree. First, he is supposing that Cain's sacrifice itself was inappropriate, and he has no proof of that. Cain was a tiller of the ground, which is evident in Genesis chapter 4, verse 2. And Cain brought to sacrifice the first fruits of his own labors, which is not unusual. There are frequent arguments that these were sin offerings, and therefore blood was required, for which reason Cain's offering was rejected. But it is not true that these were sin offerings. In fact, Paul of Tarsus said in Romans chapter 5, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So we see that these offerings made by Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4 were not sin offerings. They could not be, and therefore blood was not required. The reason that Cain's sacrifice was inappropriate is only found in the act of Abel making 
a sacrifice. It is evident in Scripture that under the Levitical priesthood, the eldest son was customarily the family priest. First, we read in Exodus chapter 13 that all the firstborn of men are sanctified to God. Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. Now, the beast that's firstborn would be sacrificed in the temple. The man that's firstborn would be sanctified in a different way. He would become the priest of the family. Then we see in Numbers chapter 3, And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of all the firstborn that opened the matrix among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine. Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle, and the Levites shall be mine. I am Yahweh. So the Levites, the tribe of Levi was taken for the priesthood, which replaced the traditional firstborn of the family as being the family priest. In addition to this custom of the rule of the firstborn being sanctified to Yahweh, we see in the epistle of Jude that Enoch was counted seventh from Adam. And in chapter 2 of the second epistle of Peter, that Noah was called the eighth preacher of righteousness. If Enoch was seventh from Adam, how are we counting to arrive at that figure? If we count generations of firstborn men to Enoch from Adam, we get, because Enoch was seventh from Adam, we do not count Adam, we get Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, and Enoch. So in that manner, Enoch is only sixth from Adam. To make Enoch seventh, we must include Abel, for whom Seth was a replacement. And therefore, Abel fits into the list of firstborn males, as the lives of Abel and Seth did not overlap, Seth not being born until after Abel was slain. He took the position previously occupied by Abel. If Cain were the firstborn male of Adam, not of Eve, of Adam, he was still alive and did not need a replacement. If Cain were to be bypassed for any reason, then the office should have fallen to his son, not to Seth's son. This is evident where Noah is called by Peter, the eighth preacher of righteousness. Even though all of the major translations render to Peter, chapter 2, verse 5, very inaccurately, in the original Greek of the manuscripts, Peter is clearly calling Noah the eighth preacher of righteousness. And I want to read what the King James Version has here. The King James Version has that God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person 
and the word person is in italics, meaning it was added to the text. And then there's a comma, which is not original in the text. And then it says, a preacher of righteousness. Now, in the original Greek, there is no indefinite article. It doesn't exist. So that wasn't in the text. So if we take out the added elements of the phrase, Noah, the eighth person, comma, a preacher of righteousness, the added elements are person, comma, a. So if we take them out, but save Noah, the eighth preacher of righteousness, that's what it says. And the Greek grammar proves that that is what it says. But none of the translators understood that. None of them. So they all screw with it. They all think that that word eighth, even though it, it's, we, we have um, cardinal numbers and ordinal numbers. We have one and first. We have two and second. We have three and third. Well, so did the Greeks. And it doesn't say eight. It says eighth. But a lot of, well, all the major translators treat it as if it said eight. And they'll, they'll change it to save Noah and seven others. But that's not what it says. That's not what it says at all. They are all creating a lie simply because they didn't understand the verse. Peter is clearly calling Noah in Greek, and the grammar supports this, the eighth preacher of righteousness. So in spite of all the screw-ups from every denominational translator, I don't care, they're all wrong, every one of them. In the original Greek and the manuscripts, Peter is clearly calling Noah the eighth preacher of righteousness. So let's count from Adam to Noah. And we get Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. That is a total of 10 and not 8. But once it is realized that two of these men did not remain on the earth longer than their fathers, which are Enoch and Lamech, Enoch was taken up by God, so his father Jared was on earth longer than him. Methuselah is famous for his very old age, and Lamech died before Methuselah. So he did not outlive his father. Once we realize that these two men did not outlive their fathers, then we realize that there were only eight elders, eight of the eldest, eight men who were the eldest living patriarchs from Adam to Noah, in spite of the fact that there were 10 generations of firstborn, counting Adam. In this list, we cannot include Abel, since he did not outlive his father, and therefore he could not be counted among the oldest living firstborn. If Abel outlived Adam before Cain slew him, Seth wouldn't have been born, right? Abel could not occupy this position. <laughs> so understanding all of these statements together, we realize that Cain was making a sacrifice as, as the, the future family priest, asserting to be the eldest son of Adam, 
But Abel also made a sacrifice and thereby challenged Cain's assertion or presumption of the position. Yahweh rejected Cain's sacrifice while he accepted Abel's. And by that we see who was the legitimate heir of Adam. Yahweh, when he rejected Cain's sacrifice and accepted Abel's, he chose who was the family priest according to the tradition which is reflected in those scriptures. But of course, the King James translation and no other mainstream denominational Christian could get the translation correct. So therefore, this information is shrouded. This connection can't be made by denominational pastors unless they want to read Greek and actually follow it. But none of them seem to do so. It's incredible. These apostles are basically proving that Abel should have been the family priest, that Abel's sacrifice is correct, and that's why Cain's sacrifice was rejected. There's no other reason possible explained in Scripture or given in Scripture that Cain's sacrifice should have been rejected and Abel's accepted, except that these circumstances, that Enoch was seventh from Adam when he was only the sixth generation from Adam, and that Noah was the eighth preacher of righteousness when he was the tenth generation, prove what's really going on in Genesis chapter 4, as far as I'm concerned. And these other traditions that are evident, that the elder son is the one that's the family priest, is the, the, the guiding light of the family, because he's going to be the patriarch when his father dies. So Abel was slated to become the second preacher of righteousness, but Cain slew him, so Seth replaced Abel. And Seth is counted in the line of the preachers of righteousness, but Cain's not. And Abel couldn't be because he did not live his father. The circumstances prove to Seedline. Furthermore... Yeah, and um, all the... Sorry, Bill, all, all the next firstborn sons, they just automatically became the priest. You never read of there being a contest of, you know, uh, go up and make a sacrifice and someone challenging them. It's just automatic. It's just passed on firstborn son. Right. Absolutely. And I believe that was the Melchizedek priesthood, even though we only have Melchizedek mentioned once in Scripture. Christ is the true Melchizedek priest and would be prophesied by David in the Psalms to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek because Christ, being God himself, even though he wasn't born for 5,000 years in the body of a man, even though he wasn't born in the body of the man for over 5,000 years after the creation of Adam, he was still God, Yahweh God incarnate, so he is still firstborn among many brethren. And being the tribal elder, he is the only rightful Melchizedek priest. It can be argued who was Melchizedek in the time of Paul. 
it's irrelevant. The um, interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham later became a type for Christ. So whoever was the oldest living elder that was Melchizedek at the time of Paul, that could be debated, and it has been debated for, for centuries. According to the Masoretic chronology, a lot of the ancients believed it was Shem. But it couldn't be Shem because the Masoretic chronology is corrupt. <laughs> and, and in the Septuagint chronology, Shem died centuries before Abraham was born, which is normal and natural, even with their extended life periods, even with their extended lifespans. Shem was dead long before Abraham. In the proper chronology. Furthermore, Weissman makes the assumption that Yahweh was accepting Cain on the basis that he could do well, although there is no explicit reason given for why he do, did not do well up to that point. There's no reason at all that Cain's sacrifice that were given that Cain's sacrifice should have been rejected. Nobody can say that there was anything wrong with the sacrifice itself because that would also be an unfounded conjecture. But is Yahweh really accepting Cain, as Weissman supposes? It is clear throughout the scriptures that God often challenged his enemies to do well, even when he knew that they could not do well. So Christ said to the Pharisees, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham in John 8, 39. John the Baptist said to the same Pharisees, O generation or race of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And that is in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Both John and Christ knew that they were not the legitimate children of Abraham. But on each occasion... They were challenged to do good, and ultimately, they could not do good. Yahweh was challenging Cain to do good. And then he told Cain that if he failed, it was because sin lieth at the door. The door, the matrix, the womb is the entry into the world for all men. The, um, the Greeks called a brother an Adelphus. And that's from the word Delphi. And that's from the Greek word Delta, which is the symbol for the letter D, which means a door. And all these concepts are related. And Adelphus, a brother, was technically... It meant sons to describe sons of the same mother, sons who came into the world through the same womb. That's the technical meaning of the term for brother in Greek. 
So that this concept of the womb being the door, the, the vagina really, being the door through which we enter the world is an ancient concept. And Yahweh is challenging Cain on that basis. If Cain did not do well, it was due to the circumstances of his birth that he could not do well. So as soon as he received that challenge to do good from God himself, he went, in the very next verse, he went and killed his brother Abel. Later, the Apostle John would write in his first epistle that Cain was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him, or why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. How was Cain of the wicked one? How, before he slew Abel, how were his works evil? Where is that ever described? Did Cain attend the devil's church? Was Cain a student of the devil? Did Cain sit at the feet of the devil and learn philosophy like Paul had sat at the feet of Gamaliel? <laughs> Is that what happened? It's not mentioned. Weissman infers these things later on, but none of them can be said to be true. Cain was the son of the devil, the seed of the serpent, and that can be established in the language of the apostles. The phrase which John used, ek tu poneru, is a preposition ek describing source or origin with a substantive, the evil one, a term describing the devil, one of the fallen angels who was also the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. So where Yahweh told Cain that if he does not do well, it is because sin lieth at the door. Weissman said God could have rightly made this statement to Abel, Adam, or any Israelite, but that is not true since Cain was a bastard, and that is the only reason why for him sin lieth at the door. Yet that or any similar statement was never made to any other man or any mere sinner. Nowhere. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that explanation again, except where Christ described the sins of the Pharisees as related to the fact that their father was a devil. We yeah, so, um, so Bill, if, if there was something wrong with the sacrifice, uh, Cain could have just come back next week or a month later or a year later and just kept trying until he got the sacrifice right. Yeah, right. So, And then what caused him to be so enraged? Like, why was he so angry he went and killed his brother? It can only be that he realized that it doesn't matter what he does, he can never do right because of his conception. He knew he was doomed. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is no doubt that he could never have that position he could never aspire to the position that belonged to his father because he wasn't legitimate. That enraged him to the point where he had to eliminate the competition. He had to eliminate Abel. 
That's the only explanation. Yeah. The bastard the bastard had to eliminate the firstborn, the the trueborn. Uh, as right. you that quote you always bring up. Yeah, right. It's found in um in Euripides. And and I believe that I have it if I look here through my um my my Greek text, my NA twenty seven, and I go to Jude, I think I have it. Nope, I'm sorry. That's a different quote. It's a different quote from the same writer. So I, I have it somewhere where, where um, Euripides, in, in citing the problems between two sons, one of a legitimate wife and, and one of an illegitimate concubine, says that the bastard will forever be an enemy to the true born. That's an old Greek adage, and, and I don't think Euripides coined it. I think it had probably been around before that, because the Greeks understood that. The, the quote that I was thinking of that I had in my Jude in my notes for Jude is, um, stain clear water with mud, and thou shalt never find sweet drink. And, and that wasn't Euripides, that was a Aeschylus in, in Eumenides. I have, um, too much on my table probably i can't even keep my quotes straight <laughs> it's found at christogenia though just search it um christogenia for the words bastard true born uh, I, I could probably come up with it I, I think i actually had first included that in some of my early programs on two seed line <clears throat> i'm sorry this is Another digression. So, so Weissman wrongly concludes that the Bible is clear that Cain was the son of Adam. To say that he was the son of the serpent or Satan requires some rather twisted reasoning or bad interpretation. And actually, the truth is precisely the opposite. One corrupted verse asserts that Cain was the son of Adam, Genesis 4.1, but all other scriptures and all of the surrounding events and circumstances refute that assertion. We do not have to accept that Cain was the son of Adam as soon as we learn that Genesis 4.1 is questionable, that the text of Genesis 4.1 is corrupt, that there were competing interpretations in ancient times, and that's the only place where it says that Cain was the natural son of Adam, we don't have to accept it as a witness. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. Weissman, if he had other witnesses, I'm sure that he would gladly produce them. But there are no other witnesses anywhere. Now, Weissman continues under the subtitle, under a new subtitle, Of Your Father, the Devil. And here, he, he really takes a wrong turn because he becomes a Gnostic and a Roman Catholic. In support of the Satanic Seedline Doctrine, recourse is made to several verses in the New Testament. The most common and controversial verses are in John chapter 8. They're the most commonly cited. Here, Jesus is arguing with some of the Jews about their religious beliefs, 
and he says, you do the deeds of your father. That's not about belief, right? That, that's about behavior. It's not about belief. So Weissman's wrong right from the start. He can't even kick this off without being deceptive or lying. You do the deeds of your father. Then they, the Jews, said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Now, right there, that proves Weissman wrong. Right there, that one answer of the Jews to Christ. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. And Christ is telling them that their origin, because they're not from God, because they are born of fornication, even though they didn't believe it, they could not possibly understand him. They didn't have the inherent ability to accept or understand him. But responding to that exchange, Weissman says, Satanic seed-lying followers claim these verses clearly show that these Jews Jesus spoke to were the literal descendants of the devil or the serpent. In, in the Revelation, we have Christ referencing those who claim to be Judeans but are not, but are of the synagogue of, of Satan. So they're not Judeans. But Weissman is just going to say this is all spiritual. They're not Judeans. They're not Israelites. They say that the use of father is to be taken literally. Yeah, that's what it means. Opponents of this doctrine say it is to be taken spiritually. Here is another example where both sides of the debate are in error. The word father is not to be interpreted literally or spiritually, but metaphorically. And, and right there, Weissman is also full of it. Because first, I would state that since a metaphor is a figure of speech in which a word or phrase is applied to an object or action to which is, it is not literally applicable, then to interpret a plain word spiritually is the same as claiming that it is a metaphor. So that portion of Weissman's refutation is pointless. He's trying to sound rational, but in truth, he is being irrational because it's nonsense. <laughs> if you interpret something spiritually, then that's not literal, and you're interpreting it as a metaphor. It's that simple. Or he's, allegorical. He's trying to sound clever, but he's, in fact, he comes across as silly. Yeah, right, exactly. Weissman insists that the word father in these verses of John chapter 8 should be interpreted metaphorically. But the Jews knew exactly what Christ had meant when they answered, we be not born of fornication. They knew that if they weren't children of God, the only alternative was that they were born of fornication. And he's talking about literal genetic parentage, a literal genetic father. Their admonition that they were, that their, um, I should, I should call it a protest. Their protest that they were only 
that they were not born of fornication is only correct according to the interpretations of the Pharisees, which were by that time already corrupt, their interpretations of the law. However, Christ is indeed telling them that God was not their father, and he meant it literally. Because in John chapter 10, in a conversation which took place later that very same day, he told them, but you believe not because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. And if they were truly Israelites, even if they were apostate Israelites, Christ would not have been able to say that to them. In the gospel, in Luke chapter 3, Adam is called the son of God. And throughout the Old Testament, God calls all of the children of Israel his children, even long after they were put off in punishment for their sins. So if these men were children of Adam or Israel, they certainly could claim to have God as a father. But here, Yahshua denies the validity of that claim. As a digression, Malachi chapter 2 contains a prophecy explaining that the Levites would forsake their covenant, allowing strangers, people who were not of Levi, into the priesthood. And for that reason, their seed would be corrupted, meaning that their descendants would be bastards. Then, because the Levites caused the people to stumble at the law, we read a dialogue where the people state in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? This is the typical um, Jewish egalitarianism, which they have perpetrated since the dawn of time. Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother, which they have promoted since the dawn of time? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. Now, this is a dialogue, but that's not really always evident in the King James Version. So, the prophet explains in answer to the protest of the people, don't we all have one father? Has not one God created us? The prophet explains that Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved and has married the daughter of a strange God. The fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi is elucidated in this very conversation which Christ had with the Pharisees in John chapter 8. In ancient times, the patriarch Judah, the actual Judah, had a Canaanite wife from which came the descendants of Shelah, and that was used as a type for the fate of Judea from the time of Malachi, who was prophesying what would happen as a result of the Judean acceptance and conversion of the Edomites which began around 125 BC. As a result, the rulers, 
the chief priests, and many of the notable men of the temple and of the government of Judea in the time of Christ were Edomites and not Israelites. The veracity of our interpretation is proven in the epistles of Paul, explicitly in Romans chapter 9, and also in the parables and revelation of Christ himself. In Romans chapter 9, Paul had prayed for those in Israel who were his kinsmen according to the flesh. Not spiritual kinsmen, but real, genetically related kinsmen. Then he said that not all in Israel were of Israel. And he went on to compare Jacob and Esau and explain how the promises, covenants, and law were for the true Israelites. After doing that, he called the Israelites vessels of mercy and the Edomites vessels of destruction. Paul's statements in Romans chapter 9 therefore inform us that by saying, Father, in John chapter 8, Christ actually meant the term literally, and his words in John chapter 10 and elsewhere prove that same thing, as we have already cited. John the Baptist is recorded as having said to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 3, O generation or race of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Of course, God can raise children of Abraham from stones, but that would not make them children of the promises. Likewise, these Pharisees, which John had called a race of vipers, would fit the description if they were Edomites and not of Israel. Esau had taken wives of the Canaanites, who in turn were mixed with the Kenites, the descendants of Cain, and with the Rephaim. But Cain, in turn, was a child of the serpent. So they are a race of serpents. There are many more New Testament examples and proofs which we can use to refute Weissman here. But he himself mentions some of them later, so we will save them for that time. But to deny two seed lines, Weissman is reduced to asserting that words do not really mean what they actually mean. So, father does not really mean father. Children does not really mean children. So, continuing his answer, he is exposed as having the same Gnostic beliefs that the early church had also adopted because the early church rejected covenant theology and accepted replacement theology. But covenant theology is the foundation for true Christianity, and it's the foundation for Christian identity. So Weissman says on page 31 of his book, the terms father and children are often used as metaphors. The word father can be used to mean one who is a leader originator or founder of some concept, system, or institution. 
And actually, Christ rejected this use of the term father among Christians. Where Christ said in Matthew chapter 23, And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father. And Christ was talking to Israelites. For one is your father who is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. So if Christ rejected the philosophical use of the term father, which he clearly did in Matthew chapter 23, here Weissman is accusing Christ of doing something which Christ himself had rejected. So Weissman's accusing Christ of being a hypocrite. But it is really Weissman who's the hypocrite. So Weissman continues. The word children can be used of those who are followers of the concepts laid down by the father or founder. Christman rejects what Weissman's claiming that, but Christ rejected that concept in Matthew chapter 23. He said, call no man your father who is on the earth. Thus we say, and Weissman continues, and he says, thus we say that Karl Marx is the father of communism, and those who are adherents to communism are his followers, disciples, or children. The words father and children used by Christ in John chapter 8 do not mean biological descent or ancestry. In like manner, we speak of George Washington, Patrick Henry, James Madison, as, etc., as being our founding fathers, even though we have no physical descent from these men. We call God our father, or say we are sons of God or children of God, but no one could rightly say we are biological descendants of God. Wow, really, Weissman? <laughs> so Weissman here denies the scripture that Adam was the son of God. Luke says very clearly Adam was the son of God, and Christ coming as a man, Paul says, is the second Adam. Why? Because Christ is the second direct son of God. The rest of us are only copies. <laughs> the rest of us are only grandchildren. We're only facsimiles of the original, if indeed we're children of Adam. Yeah, and um, right at the start, he was going on about how important bloodlines were and everything, you know, to lure people in. And here he suddenly decided, actually, it doesn't matter in the end. <laughs> it was all BS. Right. He contradicts himself all the time. He's a liar. He's the, 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 the personification of Pinocchio. I'm surprised his nose wasn't 20 feet long. If, if Pinocchio, <laughs> if that really happened, Weissman's nose would be 20 feet long. <laughs> that this, but maybe... yeah, Bill, um, I just wanted to mention, um, sorry, also um, where the Pharisees reacted so quickly saying, no, we are not race mixed. Uh, it's very clear, as you said, that they understood exactly what he meant right? and that the whole issue was race. If, even if um, Herod had burnt all the genealogies, and it was really hard to tell who's who, who's a true Levite, who's a true Judahite. Um, clearly, Christ could tell, and that, uh, as you said, that blew them away because they couldn't um, cover it up in front of him. Right, exactly. And, and they knew, they must have known that the priests that were mixed, not all the priests were mixed, 
Not all the Sanhedrin was mixed. A lot of them were Israelites, good men like um, Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, who were good men, who were Israelites, caught up in, in, in the climate of the times. Just like today, we could say that these um, Edomite Jews control our entire government. They control all the political parties. But there are a lot of good white men caught up in in party politics and in government who, who are conservatives or even neocons or Republicans or Democrats who aren't Jews. They're not all Jews. <coughs> a lot of them are good white men if they didn't have the cooperation of social climbers from our own race, they wouldn't be able to get where they get. They wouldn't be able to do what they do if they didn't have our cooperation, which gives them a veneer, a facade of legitimacy. That That's the way it is. I, I mean, they infiltrated and corrupted, but went to the point where Herod the, the, the Great became king. He bribed the Romans to be made king, in, in a time when Judea was revolting, still in the state of revolt against Rome, they made Herod the Edomite king, hoping that he could control and contain the situation. And right away, he started appointing all of the scum into positions of the priesthood. And the Levites accepted it. They didn't balk. They accepted it. Even Flavius Josephus, who I believe who was a Levite, who was also a priest, who I believe was an Israelite and an honest man, even he was caught up in the politics of the times. He was enamored by the family of Herod. He was very favorable to them. He was friendly with them. He had grown up with um, Herod Agrippa too, that they were childhood friends. He was fully embedded in, in that entire society and is proof of how um, blind even a, a learned man who knew the scriptures, who was a priest, could be by the politics of the time. But these Edomites, these priests that were Edomites, must have known in their own consciences, that they did have Edomite ancestors. However, they also believed that because they were circumcised and cleansed according to the rituals of the Judeans, that they could be true Israelites. It, it's sort of like today going to a, a beast from the jungles of Kenya who has become a Roman Catholic bishop and telling him that he can't be a Christian. He was baptized. He believes he can be a Christian. He believes that his baptism changed his physical nature and characteristics so that he is no different than any other Roman Catholic. The Edomites, the ancient Edomites, believe that same thing. So they rejected, they didn't see things along the lines of race like Christ had seen them. They thought that they could be sheep, and he knew that they were wolves in sheep's clothing. 
This is racial. He denied them that they were sheep. He denied them that they had any common origin with him. Weissman tries to make Christ a hypocrite. Weissman uses the use of this word in modern times, in our pop culture. And we do use the word father that way in modern times. But it was not always so. On occasion, the words father or mother are used metaphorically in scripture, allegorically. But that is an exception. It is not the rule. And it is perfectly evident when the terms are used in that manner that they should be interpreted metaphorically. But if the Jews themselves thought Christ was using the term father metaphorically, they would not have responded with a reference to fornication and a reference to the circumstances of their birth. So they understood his words to be literal. As another digression, and this is also off the topic, originally the American founding fathers were not merely the notable men who were the most visible leaders of the revolution or, or the occupants of office. The term was applied to all of the men of the nation in that generation who had a role or took part in the creation of the republic and who left a constitution declaring that republic to be for themselves and their posterity, which is their descendants. That concept was later also corrupted, but the corruption was not original to the intent of the so-called founding fathers. Weissman is judging both Christ and them according to the corrupt uses of the terms. But that is a digression. It's not our topic. In the New Testament, if father does not literally mean father, and if children does not literally mean children, then we all may as well be universalist Roman Catholics, because otherwise the word of God has no meaning whatsoever. If we interpret father and children here according to our own whims, then we could justify doing that anywhere in scripture to the point of nullifying the meaning of the entire word of God. But as you pointed out, Weissman even contradicted himself from the earlier chapters of his book, from his own statements, which he made in the opening chapter, in the opening, in the second chapter, not the missing chapter, where he talked about the importance of bloodline in the Bible. He's contradicting himself. Oh, it don't matter anymore. We're in the New Testament now. Anybody could be children of God. You just have to believe. It's basically what he's saying. But if that was true, why would Christ tell those? Yeah, exactly. Why? I'm sorry. Go on. Sorry. I was going to say, why is it even in Christian identity if it, if none of it matters? It's just so bizarre. Like when he opened up in his first chapter, as we said, he seems to be CIA. And then as you get deeper into it, he doesn't believe anything of Christian identity. Right. Absolutely. He doesn't even believe the Bible. 
he thinks that after the time of, of um, the Babylonian captivity, that they were just um, Ezra, Daniel, Nehemiah, and, and all the New Testament authors, that they were only just going along with Babylonian theology. That's what he said. <laughs> he doesn't even believe the Bible. He's a clown. And anybody that follows this turkey is a clown along with him. And that goes for some pretty notable Christian identity so-called pastors and teachers of today. Robert Balakias, I believe, is one of them. He follows him. Mark Downey followed Charles Weissman. This guy's a liar and a clown, and that's what they're following. He contradicts himself. That's what they're following. He doesn't believe the Bible. That's what they are following. And, and that's what Ted Weiland follows this guy, Stephen Jones. They all follow him. And I got some stories. I, I don't have the stories, but I'm going to try to get a recording. That there's, and I mentioned him, I think, last week. There's one of my longtime listeners. He's been listening to me um, since the Eli James days, right? Probably since 2009, early 2010. He's um, been involved in Christian identity for... Um, 40 years, maybe, as long as, it, it, probably longer than Clifton Emmeheiser, but he's not a writer, he's not a pastor, he's just a student, and, and that, that's, <clears throat> I, I guess that's where he's happy, and that's fine, but he did attend, and he told me this, um, he's told me this in the past, probably years ago, and I sort of forgot it, but he attended a CI a, a Christian identity conference and function way back in the nineties. And Charles Weissman was there sitting at the head of the table. And there were other notable Christian identity figures around the table, pastors of the eighties and nineties. And Stephen Jones was there with his wife. And this man testified that his wife said to him, because he, he was sitting his wife was sitting between Stephen Jones and our friend. And this man told me that Stephen Jones's wife said that if Charles Weissman cut off the tip of his little finger, that he would no longer be a Jew. That's what she said to him. So evidently, Charles Weissman did have at least some small amount of Jewish blood. And they were all following him. All these notable um, non-seed line identity pastors and teachers were following Charles Weissman, who evidently did have a small amount of Jewish blood. And he's a liar. And he contradicts himself and he lies throughout this book. But they still follow him today. And they still hold him up as some kind of authority to this day. And this... This sort of thing has to be rooted out of Christian identity. All of these bastards that teach these heresies, that introduce these heresies into Christian identity, have to be rooted out and eliminated. And if people don't root out and eliminate them, then we have to identify their followers and whoever refuses to. Because they yeah. all have it, it just shows you you can't outdo genetics. It always comes to the surface eventually. Absolutely. It always does. There's no avoiding it. 
It's the gospel of Christ that separates the wheat and the tares. And you either really believe it and put it into practice in your life, or you somehow aren't worthy of it. You aren't worthy of making that sacrifice, and any sacrifice you do make will ultimately be rejected, just as Cain's sacrifice was rejected, just as Christ told the same Pharisees that they could believe him and they could teach in his name and do miracles in his name, but in the end, he will tell them, get away from me, I never knew you. Because they aren't descended from God. They aren't literal, physical, genetic children of God. As God created Adam, as his son, and would later come as the second Adam to be his elder brother, firstborn among many brethren. That's the essence of Christianity. And if you don't believe that, and if you're not one of those descendants, you can't be a Christian. Weissman was a, a, just another Jewish infiltrator. In John chapter 8, in verses 41 through 44, which Weissman had cited, the terms father and children are used in the same context in which they were used in verses 37 through 39, which Weissman did not cite. There we read, I know that you are Abraham's seed. Christ speaking to these same people that he called children of, of, of the murderer in, in verse 44. We have to understand that seed, that seed are descendants in verse 37, so seed and children are, are also just as literal in verses 41 through 44. Weissman is taking verses 41 through 44, and he is separating them from the rest of the passage, which supplies the context for the words. They're not metaphorical or allegory. They are to be understood and interpreted literally. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I, which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Now he already acknowledged that. Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Now, if Abraham were their father, they would also be children of God. Christ told them, I know that you are Abraham's seed, meaning that they did in fact descend from Abraham. But if they were descendants of Esau, they were bastards who were rejected by God. So they were not true children of Abraham, even if they could claim to be his descendants. If they were bastards, they were disclaimed by God, even as Cain was rejected by God. Finally, Weissman cited John 8.44, where Yahshua had told his adversaries, in part, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him.
citing this, Weissman assumed that two seed line teachers claimed that this proves that the adversaries of Yahshua were therefore, and I quote, the literal descendants of the devil or the serpent. But we would not make that claim as Weissman worded it. Rather, John 8.44 proves that the adversaries of Christ were descendants of Cain because only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. Now, it is also evident that Cain was called a devil. And it is obvious to us that he was a devil because the devil was his father. But that is besides the point. Yahshua is not telling his adversaries that they were children of the devil. Rather, he is telling them that they are children of Cain, the murderer from the beginning, who happened to be a devil. Once the verse is read correctly, it is discovered that Weissman cannot answer it, so he never bothered to read it correctly. He did that same thing in his comments on Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, where he failed to understand that there were giants in the earth before those days, before the, the union of, of the sons of God and the daughters of men, or the sons of heaven and the daughters of men. So he did the same thing, his same method of reading in Genesis 6-4, he also applied here. Christ is telling these, these men that they're descendants of Cain, not descendants of some spiritual devil. And that's because only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. So Weissman's a fool. He thinks he's smart, but he's not smart. I would destroy this clown in a debate. I wish he still lived. I wish I could have a debate with this clown. Once again, I, that last paragraph I read, once again, I left off the last sentence. So Weissman next says, in Matthew 12, Christ healed a man. And the Pharisees said that Christ did this by the power of Beelzebub. Christ responded, and if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Matthew chapter 12, verse 27. And Weissman says, any good Bible commentary will point out that the word children used in this verse is a metaphor to mean the disciples or followers of the Pharisees. Christ was not referring to their biological children. And here, once again, Weissman is operating on a false presumption. First, Christ never made a reference to Beelzebub's children. Rather, he asked the Pharisees, or to the Pharisees' followers, he asked the Pharisees, by whom do your children cast them out? So Weissman's argument is actually nonsense in this context. It cannot be demonstrated that Christ is talking about anyone's followers. Many of the chief priests and Pharisees had children in the priesthood. And the Edomite Jews were caught up in all of the mysticism and sorcery of the time. The chief priests at this time were Annas and Caiaphas.
And Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. And after Caiaphas had been removed from the priesthood, from the office of chief priest, of high priest, after Caiaphas was removed from the office of high priest, which happened in 41 AD, five of Annas's sons, the brother-in-laws of Caiaphas, five of them had been appointed as high priest at one time or another in between 41 AD and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So where Christ said, by whom do your sons cast them out? He's referring to the actual children of the high priests who were practicing priests at this time. The children of Israel were commanded not to engage in necromancy, but the Edomite Jews could not desist. So we read in Acts chapter 19, then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you, by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So we have the, the, the chief priest, the high priest of the time of Christ, had many sons of their own in the priesthood, five of whom became high priests themselves at a later time, and then in Acts chapter 19, we have Sceva, a Jew, and one of the chief of the priests, and he had seven sons who were practicing exorcism and necromancy. Weissman tried to make his readers think that Christ used the term children metaphorically in Matthew chapter 12, when he was actually speaking of the literal children of the Pharisees who were indeed engaged in this sort of sorcery. His own false presumption created a lie by which he could then somehow prove his other lie that father and children in John chapter 8 were also metaphorical. If any of Weissman's arguments were true, he would never have had to create lies, and so many lies, in order to establish that they were true. He is the Christian identity Pinocchio, without a doubt. I have no doubt. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like um, they were professional exorcists. You pay the money and they'll come and uh, cast out evil spirits. Well, well, That's how I imagine it, some right. kind of a business. I would bet if you go through the gospel and, and the words of Christ in, in chapters like Matthew chapter 23, right? The Pharisees were, were using their offices 
to profit off the people. If you read um, Flavius Josephus in his own descriptions of the priesthood at this very time, they were operating, the, the high priests were operating the priesthood like an organized crime ring in order to extort more and more money out of the people. They were even persecuting the Levites and, and stealing their tithes. So yes, they were, Christ accused them of raiding the houses of widows. Who is it today that goes more frequently than any other segment of our society? Who gives money to these gypsy um, fortune tellers? Old widows. I've seen this myself in, in, in New Jersey where I grew up. I've seen this myself, these old widows always going to the gypsy fortune tellers to learn about their dead husbands, the futures of their children, and that they were necromancers or, or witches or whatever. The Pharisees and, and the, these Edomite high priests, they were doing this 2,000 years ago. They still do it today. I believe these gypsies are actually related to the Jews anyway, but they still do it today. That's how they raid the houses of widows, by exploiting their religious superstitions. And they still do it today. And they yeah, and the today. churches will even try to get them to leave their inheritance to the church, you know, donate it all to the church. They always try and get that. Absolutely. That there was a um, where I spent my my um, where I lived as a young man. That there was a parish in downtown Bayonne, New Jersey, and I'm trying to even think of the name of it. And and it might have been St Andrews. I, I think. Well, well, this parish was the largest holder of real estate single-family homes, and they were all single-family and two-family homes. The most prevalent type of building was probably the two-family home, where, where the owner would live and, and rent out the top floor to the tenant, and, and that's how they build homes so that people could cover their taxes, I guess. Um, this one church, St. Andrew's Ch Church, was the largest owner of real estate in that entire section of town and mostly because when people when these old widows died they left their houses to the church so the church became richer and richer and richer this is um yep that's how it always goes <laughs> this is nothing new but evidently these um priests were feeding off the superstitions of the people and off of their afflictions and exercising these demons and, and healing them for money. They, it was profitable. That's why they were wandering vagabond Jews. They were doing it to make money. They had to be. <laughs> so when they encountered a real demon, the real demon abused them, <laughs> at least on this particular occasion, as it's described in Acts chapter 19. And, and in that we see that the literal children of the adversaries of Christ, their literal children were casting out demons in the names of, of these pagan gods. 
If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your children cast them out? They're not. If they're Edomite bastards, that they surely can't be calling on Yahweh. He's not going to entertain their prayers or their requests. So, yes, he's talking about literal children. Charles Weissman's a liar. Because we see a clear <laughs> record of literal You caught him again. <laughs> literal children of the priests engaged in the very business which is being discussed in Matthew 12, 27. Their literal children are doing that. But Weissman just makes a story up thinking it's going to prove his other statements that he's also lying about. Weissman's a liar. <laughs> Every way I look at this, Charles Weissman is a damned liar. Every single way. When we, when we, um, Weissman calls two seed line, he calls us Gnostics later in his book, right? He tries to associate us with Gnosticism and Talmudism. But his allegorical interpretations of scripture came from Gnostics and the Talmud. And that's where we're going to go as we continue with the um, with our assessment of this chapter of his book, and that'll have to wait till next week. But thank you for being here. Yeah, brilliant. I look forward to it. Wonderful. No problem, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of all these evil Jew necromancies and vagabond Jews. Thank you, Bill. And, and taco goblins. <laughs> Thank you. Praise Yahweh. <laughs> yeah.